my name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, February 22nd, 2012. We're going to be doing our light edition today. My schedule has been, well, crazy. Normally is about this time of the week. In your listening to Fighting for the Faith, my name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result, we've got to do the corrective work, open up the biblical text, and see if what people are saying is true when put in context, or if, well, they're pulling the wool over our eyes and engaging in obfuscation. So one of the things we do here is that we do a lot of teaching, and uh, on a weekly basis we do a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. That doesn't mean that the topic is light. It just means that we're not dealing with multiple topics. We're focusing in on a singular topic and uh, usually turn the microphone or the the airwaves or the Internet, airwaves, how you refer to it in the new media. But uh, I t- turn over the program to somebody who, well, knows what they're talking about. And uh, and as a result of it, you know, we can go deeper into a particular topic. We've been working our way through a series of lectures presented by Dr. Michael Horton. And, I well, they're just, they're just great. And uh, anyway, so without any further ado here, we're going to be doing on today's edition uh, lectures 9 and 10 in the series. So here's the next two lectures. In the series, here's Dr. Horton. Good morning. Well, we've been looking at the Great Commission. First of all, the great announcement that frames it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Got to start there with the Great Commission because the imperative always rests on the indicative. 
wherever you see a therefore, the rule of thumb is to ask what it's there for. And the go therefore into all the world is grounded in the announcement that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. So we're not going out there to to, uh, uh, build the kingdom of God. We're not going out there uh, to create the kingdom of God. We're not going out there to save the world. Uh, That's been done. (laughs) Jesus says, I have all that authority. You're You're not out there to take back authority from this, that, or the other thing. I have all the authority. Let's not have any question about that now you're free to go out and tell everybody you're free to go unlock all the prison doors you don't have to save anybody just here are the keys go unlock the prison prison doors and uh, now we get to the clause uh, making disciples of all the nations so going into all the world what does that mean does everyone really have to believe the gospel in order to be saved Uh, the urgency of that commission that our Lord has given us. The extensiveness, go into all the world. What does it mean to go into all the world with one gospel, yet in, in so many different cultural contexts and languages and backgrounds and so forth? And uh, now we're going to focus on what it means uh, to make disciples. So this is the goal. We've been talking about the the context and now the goal of the Great Commission, that of making disciples. Um, according to lots of studies that we see these days, especially around every Christmas and Easter, uh, people in America say they're spiritual but not religious. What that means is they're boomers. <laughs> what it means is they, they, like, uh, they like the gain without the pain, they like the rewards without actually having to fly to get the frequent flyer miles. Uh, you know, it, there's a, uh, a a desire to sort of have this private, uh, happy, uh, therapeutic relationship with Jesus, God, Isis, whomever, uh, in a way that doesn't really require me to relinquish my sovereignty my mastery of the situation. And that's basically what we, what we run into on the street when people say that they're spiritual but not religious. They, it means that they basically follow their own little hunches, their spiritual and religious hunches inside of them. They, they don't submit their insides to the external reality, to the way things actually are. They're, they're entirely subjective. They're religious convictions are entirely determined by what they would like to believe. Uh, And religion is something that's offensive to that. Regardless of what kind of religion it is, you know, religions impose things that you have to believe and things you have to do and rituals and all sorts of things that chain that free soul, that don't let that that inner spirit uh, create its own world inside. And uh, that's why uh, uh, many people dabble today in whatever beliefs and practices they find intuitively valid and useful for daily living. But the question of, is it true, doesn't really come up because religion isn't about truth, ultimately. Religion is about feeling good, being good. Um, And 
So a lot of people, even in evangelical circles, uh, are willing to be consumers rather than disciples. Uh, you know, what, what, uh, what's in it for me? What, uh, here's, here's a product. Jesus is sold kind of like a product where uh, if you're not completely satisfied, you can return the unused portion for a full refund. And uh, we, we, we really, we, what, if Jesus is sold as a product, it's no surprise that the people who buy are consumers. That how you get them in really determines how you keep them in. You can't bait and switch people. If you got them in as consumers, they're going to be consumers uh, down the road. You can't switch them from consumers to disciples. It just doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples, not consumers, not even converts. He doesn't say, go into all the world and get, a, get as many people as you can to pray the sinner's prayer. Uh, you know, have really, really uh, huge altar calls and uh, get a lot of professions of faith. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. That's the goal. The goal is to make disciples. It's not that making disciples is really a a, a nice add-on to making converts. Uh, He doesn't mention making converts at all. He says making disciples. And Jesus warns, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, 21. Historically, evangelicals have a pretty good track record of, of underscoring that verse and calling nominal Christians in nominal, broad, Protestant state churches in Europe to serious consideration that this may be said of them one day as they stand before the Lord. Um, that's really how evangelicalism got its start as a movement. Church within a church. So you had, first of all, in Lutheran state churches, uh, these uh, 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 churches within a church where they would get together for Bible study and prayer and uh, journaling and talk about how their spiritual walk was going. And this was the really important thing. They would stay in the state church and they would go to public worship with the rest of the Lutherans in town and participate in word and sacrament ministry and, and so forth. But then, then they would go to their conventicles, uh, or as Wesley called them uh, at Oxford, holy clubs. They would go to their, their conventicles or holy clubs, their church within a church, for the real meat of Christian practice, like small groups today. I don't know, small groups aren't bad, but... Somehow, so a lot of churches talk about their small groups as if they're more important than the public worship. And that's pietism. That just comes right out of what we're talking about here. Uh, Lutheran pietism and then Reformed pietism. Same thing in Reformed state churches where people were saying, well, we're not, you know, this, is, this is the only legal place to do your baby, so we're going to stay in the state church. <laughs> Yeah, that's how they talk about it, too. It's, it's going to have my baby done. Okay. Wow. Um, and uh, then they, uh, they're really going to 
do the, the serious business, though, kind of uh, behind closed doors somewhere else. Many will be surprised on the last day, Jesus says. On that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so clearly, it isn't just, it isn't just uh, a... a a a decision, signing a a, a card or praying a prayer that uh, is the goal of evangelism. People are not evangelized in order to become disciples. They are only evangelized when they have accepted discipleship. Discipleship and evangelism go hand in hand. There aren't two stages of, first of all, evangelism, and then discipleship if you get around to it, if you feel so inclined, you know, the especially pious among us may want to also be disciples. Uh, the rest of us might just like to sort of go coach. That's okay. You still get to the same place. Uh, you, you make your final destination. Jesus is saying, uh, no, that's not the case. And now a lot of evangelicals are saying this because of the state of evangelicalism itself. It's in a real sense, evangelicalism has become the state church of America, ironically. And so now the American state church uh, has become so nominal, people don't know what they believe or why they believe it. All the statistics reveal there's no difference uh, between uh, uh, the, the faith and practice of someone who goes regularly to an evangelical church and someone who doesn't go to church at all. Um, in fact, according to a recent poll, Pew, uh, Pew study, um, uh, uh, in terms of knowledge of the Bible and doctrine, atheists and agnostics came in first, uh, and, and evangelicals came in behind Mormons, uh, and then mainline Protestants and Roman Catholics uh, came in last as not knowing uh, uh, really anything about the Bible or doctrine. And so in this kind of situation, you have have a number of evangelical voices saying, look, this is serious. When Jesus says, on the last day he will say to some, I never knew you, this means we have to take discipleship seriously. And so you have a, a, a movement that arose in the 1970s, especially called the spiritual disciplines movement. Some of you may have, uh, heard of um, of uh, Dallas Willard and before Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, his book Celebration of Discipline, uh, published in 1978. That became a, a bestseller. Uh, and uh, Richard Foster and Dallas Willard both have been concerned to call evangelicalism out of a kind of nominal holding pattern into serious, committed, regular discipleship. Now, both come from this pietist heritage. Dallas Willard is a Methodist, and uh, 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 Richard Foster is a Quaker. Richard Foster wrote an article in Christianity Today years ago, further up, further in, uh, in which he was talking about the need to recover the great medieval disciplines. And I think this is 
wow, this is uh, uh, the time in which we're living, I guess, but a Quaker is advancing medieval monastic spirituality. But it's not that far off, actually, because, see, the monks thought that the real thing happened in in the monastic community, in the prayer cell, and in the... The, uh, that's what, what really happened, and the church out there is corrupt. So we have, to, we have to draw ourselves away from not only a corrupt world, but a corrupt church, and this will be our church within a church. Pietism really came out of that medie- medieval monastic pi- uh, uh, piety. And so it's not surprising, actually, that a Quaker uh, is advancing these ideas, and a uh, uh, Methodist... Uh, thoughtful uh, Methodist professor at USC in uh, the philosophy department there, Dallas Willard is as well. And Dallas Willard and Richard Foster say one of the major reasons why discipleship, serious discipleship, has fallen off the radar is because of the Reformation and the doctrine of justification. If we could just, if we could just uh, uh, get over this fear of works righteousness that's, that's paralyzing us, uh, perhaps we could really uh, focus again on these disciplines. Um, and, and the thing is, when you read these folks, you, you, you do see some glimmers of, of important uh, truth. It's, it, uh, it, we live in a really fast-paced world where we don't take the things that are most important as seriously as we seem to take things that are more trivial. Uh, you know, we're not really, and I'm speaking of myself here, our generations are not nearly as thoughtful as previous generations about how we spend our time because we're more passive. Time happens to us. <laughs> you know, we're, we are always scheduling things. We are always... Uh, uh, we are always bombarded with advertising and with, um, with with movements and trends that change every uh, every week and a half. And living in this kind of fast-paced world makes it really hard for us to 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 stop, slow down, smell the roses, take the most important things seriously enough, without just throwing it in reverse and getting out of the lanes entirely and going off-roading. You know, uh, being a, an off-roading monk. Uh, why not? If that's the only way I can get off of this freeway, uh, fine. And you can understand why a lot of people appreciate uh, these books, and they have a lot of uh, good wisdom in them. But the problem, of course, is uh, that you you... you you have a view of discipleship here that is purely inward, not focused on the external means of grace. See, in the Reformation understanding, interpretation of Scripture, uh, the Word comes to us from the outside and changes us on the inside. But in the, in the more pietistic approach, the Word wells up from within us and is expressed externally. It's, it's just the opposite. In a biblical view of discipleship, the word comes to us from the outside and changes us on the inside. In a more pietist paradigm, the word wells up from within us, our own religious experience, and we express it externally. So it just it, it, it works in reverse. And we'll see as we go along how important that distinction 
uh, really is. In, in Reformation piety, it was not the case that private disciplines were thrown out. They weren't throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, they uh, translated the Bible into the vernacular so that every uh, every uh, plowboy and uh, and uh, mother would be able to take a break and open up the Bible and read it and explain it and understand it. And so the Reformation was hardly uninterested in personal, private devotions and spiritual practices. Tons of books and hymns rolled off the press uh, during uh, the, the Reformation to help families with their private devotions and help individuals with their private devotions. This was before pietism dawned. And so there was always a concern uh, about wedding the public worship with the family worship with the private worship. That all of the, It's sort of like, a, like a, a, a fountain that's cascading from the public worship service of word and sacrament, cascading outward to the family, and then cascading still further outward to individuals, and then out into the world where those individuals are salt and light. The problem is, if you reverse that flow, what happens is everything becomes private. Every become, everything becomes individualistic, and we begin to think of the Christian faith primarily and discipleship primarily in terms of the things that I do by myself, not in terms of the things that I do with other people and for other people as a result of God having done something for me. And uh, so that's what I want us to focus on in the time remaining here, and then also next uh, next time uh, we're able to focus on these things. Uh, one more uh, point by way of introduction here: in the in medieval monasticism, you had basically two different types of of monastic piety. One was uh, celebrating the contemplative life. Most monks celebrated the contemplative life. Uh, contemplation. Okay, this is this is that Platonic worldview of trying to ascend that ladder from material stuff upward to get out of your body, get out of your get out of your world. Um, that's why you became a monk in the first place. And then uh, the ascent of mind or ascent of soul away from this world and earthly things and the body to the spiritual, eternal things. Um, this is the contemplative life. But the active life was advanced by other medieval uh, monastic movements and that was outward to your neighbor. And so, for example, the Cistercians and the Augustinians and all sorts of orders that you could think of were on the contemplative side. But Francis of Assisi was really a reformer in the 12th century because he said it's about the active life, not the contemplative life. Christianity is about feeding the hungry, taking care of those who are in need. Uh, true religion, as James says, is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. What are you doing over here? I mean, seriously, um, you're, you're, you're really of no good to anybody. 
And this is where Luther comes in as more of a Franciscan in his, in his really quite humorous, not at the time I'm sure, but really humorous description of monks. Since he was one, he ought to know what it was like. And he has this whole discourse on the most useless person in the world. Um, and Francis of Assisi would have agreed that, that, that people who follow the contemplative path are the most use, useless people in the world because they don't really help anybody. They think that they're gaining points with God. God's really angry <laughs> with them because they aren't trusting in, in Christ alone for their righteousness. So God's not getting anything out of this. You think he's enjoying it? No, he's not enjoying it at all. Um, you're, uh, you're not helping your neighbor because you're doing it out of selfishness and everything that you're doing is all about you and your personal relationship with the Lord has nothing to do with your neighbor. So he's not getting anything out of it. Uh, how about you? Well, no, actually, because God is, 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 is really more angry towards you than he's ever been before because you're doing this. So nobody's getting anything out of this. That's why Luther says this is the most useless vocation in the world. Uh, at least the Franciscans were interested in their neighbor and, and their neighbor's needs. What we see in evangelicalism today are these two movements, the Dallas Willard, Richard Foster celebration of spiritual disciplines movement represents the contemplative side, the emergent church movement focusing on social justice and so forth is the more uh, transformative um, world-embracing side, but they're both different forms of monasticism. And that's why you find prayer labyrinths and all kinds of accoutrements of medieval piety in both of these movements because this really came out of this. And the leaders of the emergent movement will say that in many respects they came out of the Richard Foster, Dallas Willard movement, but they have opened it up beyond the, the kind of individualistically and inwardly focused uh, uh, emphasis of that movement to a more world-embracing and neighbor-embracing kind of movement. The Reformation challenged this whole paradigm, not just tweaking it here and there, challenged the whole paradigm. Uh, there is no ladder from a lower realm to a higher realm. Rather, God became flesh, God messed up Plato's ladder so horribly. Uh, God became flesh. The very thing, you know, when we're trying to become spirit, get away from flesh, God was becoming flesh. So it's like, you know, going up the escalator uh, when you're meant to be going down and you're halfway up and, the, you know. Uh, God is coming down when we're trying to ascend away from him. And he is to be found not in blinding glory in a palace up here. He is found in a dirty manger with donkeys down here. He says, God loves to, uh, to, to uh, uh, turn things upside down. And furthermore, this means that sin is not to be identified with the world as such, but with our own hearts. Luther said, when I went into the monastery, I found out, uh, I, I, I went in there to get away from the world and sin and temptation, and uh, it was great for about 24 hours, and then I realized that I, I had brought the rascal in with me. <laughs> I was the problem, <laughs> not the world. Um, 
And uh, as, as, so as a result of God saving grace toward us, you know, there's nothing for us to do. There's nothing for us to merit, nothing for us to contribute to our own salvation. As a result of that, there's nowhere for our good works to go except out to our neighbor. Good works can't go up to God. This killed monasticism wherever it went. Why? Because monasticism is, the whole system is built on the arrow pointing upward and the gospel is pointing downward. The good works are done by God for us. Well, what? The Bible calls us to good works. Of course it calls us to good works for our neighbors. God's okay. He's going to do just fine if we don't build him a house. He's going to... He's going to make it through the winter if his roof leaks. He'll be all right. But my neighbor won't. It's my neighbor whom he created in his image who is crying out for me. My neighbor needs me. That's where good works go. And Luther had a great line, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. That kind of encapsulates Reformation piety. There's a, there's a love for the neighbor that, that even goes to the point of the reformer's... Uh, pointing out from Scripture how our neighbor really is Christ to us. And, and, and uh, inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these, you have done it unto me. And so we hear Dallas Willard and uh, others in the discipleship movement, we hear their concerns. Dallas Willard judges with great insight. Pastors need to ask, is my first aim to make disciples or do I just run an operation? Discipleship on the theological right, he says, has come to mean preparation for soul winning under the direction of parachurch efforts that had discipleship farmed out to them because the local church really wasn't doing it. On the left, discipleship has come to mean some form of social activity or social service from serving soup lines to political protests to whatever The term discipleship has currently been ruined so far as any solid psychological and biblical content is concerned. I would agree with him. And as I say, there are some really good critiques uh, in Dallas Willard and Richard Foster, really good critiques of uh, the the, the, the way things seem to be going in terms of the nominal evangelicalism that in many respects was a reaction against a nominal Protestantism. But what does discipleship mean in the New Testament? Let me just uh, start there, and then we're going to spend more time uh, in coming sessions on what we mean by discipleship. Uh, first of all, when we go to the New Testament, we gotta, we've got to, as much as possible, not think in terms of 21st century evangelical Christian bookstores, and the books on the shelf on discipleship, our images of discipleship, nor think in terms of medieval monasticism and their idea of discipleship. We've got to get on El Al, fly over to Israel, and uh, sit around a kibbutz and uh, meet a couple of rabbis and live there for a while and start figuring out, oh, this is what discipleship means. Because it's very different from from Western ideas of, uh, a, 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 uh, uh, of uh, someone who trains people. 
Rabbi just means teacher. Uh, but it's an authoritative teacher. It was in, in Jesus' day a teacher who is entrusted with the very oracles of God. And the learner is a student. We get our, our uh, um, word uh, disciple, in fact, from the Latin word for student. That's what, that's, that is exactly what a disciple was. A disciple was a student. Now, of course, not a student like a, uh, a student in a classroom in college taking notes and listening to a professor, but a student nonetheless. They would go out with the rabbi on his rounds and they would learn from the rabbi and the rabbi would pass people in the market and say, uh, uh, he has two denarii. Now, if he had two denarii and, da, 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 and he's just standing there talking to his his disciples, as they're standing there, and some people would overhear and say, oh, this is Rabbi Gorshan. Let's go listen to what he... He always has something interesting to say. Let's listen in to what he's saying to his disciples. But the, but the, the message was for the disciples. And he would take ordinary experiences and connect biblical teaching to ordinary everyday life. That was the idea of a rabbi and going around with a rabbi as a disciple of that rabbi. Both Jesus' disciples and critics came to him with questions, and much of the sayings related in the Gospels come from this context that I'm talking about of rabbis and, and uh, pupils. That's why much of what Jesus says in the, recorded in the Gospels is in the form of teachings. That's what rabbis do. The teacher has teachings. And the one who is following, the disciple, is a student. So the first thing we have to, 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 to do here when we're thinking about a biblical context for discipleship is that before anything else, a disciple is a learner. Say, oh, well, no, the disciple is first of all a doer. No, that's not true. But it's also not a learner in isolation from doing. It is... It is learning on the road with the rabbi. It's following the rabbi around, listening to what he has to say. Listen to how he's handling this person who has just lost her mother and how the Bible consoles this person and how truth is relevant in that particular circumstance. Jesus did not imagined that his example was enough to win the day. In fact, he knew that what he was coming to do was for the most part something he could only do alone. But that because of his lonely death and resurrection for us, he would create a community of people who would never, uh, ne never uh, uh, be able to, to, to live apart from each other. And that's the community that he formed, but he had to do what he had to do primarily alone. And the primary sign of discipleship was the acceptance of Jesus' teaching concerning himself. The per persecutions recounted in the book of Acts are persecutions for the sake of the name, for, for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And being a disciple of Jesus Christ meant saying he is the only way, truth, and life. Jesus himself said that 
the rabbis of his day tie up heavy burdens and put them on your back that neither they uh, nor their uh, fathers could carry. And they don't even lift a finger to help you. Come to me. Come to me. All you who labor and are burdened down and I will give you rest. For take my yoke upon you. That was how they talked about signing up for a particular rabbi, taking on his yoke. Like being a, an, a, a cow under his yoke. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your souls. I'm not going to beat you up. I'm going to be a different kind of rabbi. I'm, I'm not going to, you're going to find rest with me and solace. And uh, uh, Jesus very definitely, therefore, thought in terms of his being uh, a rabbi in category, but of a different, a radically different kind. One last example before I quit here. Two sisters, Mary and Martha, familiar story, uh, among Jesus' closest disciples. And we're told that Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. See, that's a typical relationship of a disciple, which, by the way, wasn't done. Jesus uh, was one of, one of a long list of things that he frustrated the religious authorities for, was that he took women into his, among his disciples. That just wasn't done. You know, a disciple was not a vocation that women could sign up for. Um, but they did, and were among uh, uh, Jesus' closest disciples. And so Mary is uh, sitting there at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. She was engaged in the active life, and she thought Mary was too engaged in the contemplative life. Um, could you please tell, I'm doing this for you. You know, I'm doing it, be, you have a, a whole retinue of people in here and out of here every five minutes. I've got to put some soup on for Pete's sake. Everybody's going to be over here in five minutes. And all Martha does is sit there with her notebook, uh, you know, listening to everything that you say and asking you theological questions. Could someone do a little work around here? And, you know, you could see it. She, she had probably some basis for this, for this frustration. But Jesus replied, Mar Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. That could maybe not have made Martha that much happier. Um, but, oh, Martha, Martha, you are, wow, you're, you're tightly wound. Uh, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. That, more than anything else, is a disciple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that taking your son's yoke and learning of him brings true, not only forgiveness, but transformation. That all of our energy, all of our activism cannot really generate at all. Help us, Father, to learn, to, to uh, uh, submit to the discipline uh, of those who follow the Master, follow the Rabbi from Israel, who is nothing less than your Son in our flesh. 
Help us, Father, to choose the better part, listening and then following the one whose word we have heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to pause there between the lectures, uh, pay some bills, and uh, when we come back, we'll continue with lecture number 10. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. Hold on a second. You out there! How much more to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer? Shut up! Don't sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of Scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. 
Hang himself. Hang himself. Hang himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide. What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death. What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture. Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention, and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like His. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they're not teaching the Bible in depth and not giving you the gospel. Just saying, that's one of the after effects. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank you for uh, your support in making this program possible all right now here's uh, the next lecture in our series on the lectures done by dr michael horton on the great commission here's lecture number 10 get underway since uh yeah Ning-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling, I think, uh, I'm not really good at mimicking a bell. 
That or clapping, just yeah. Or we could pray. Okay, let's open in a word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, our prophet, priest, and king, and uh, that that word still goes out to the ends of the earth. We pray, Father, that uh, as we make that connection between what we have heard this morning and the great commission that You have given us, uh, we would think about our role uh, in that as disciples and disciple-makers. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to try to uh, uh, get through all of this uh, uh, material for the question of what does it mean to make disciples in one talk. Otherwise, uh, this is going to become the gift that keeps on giving. Um, (laughs) We're not going to get through any of the material, and by the time it's all over, there will be lots of trees with no forest. So... um, just to bring you up to speed from, from uh, last time, I, was, I, I began the topic of uh, what is this goal that we're given in the Great Commission of making disciples? What does it mean to be disciples and what does it mean to make disciples? By pointing out, first of all, the concern that a number of evangelical leaders have, uh, justifiable in my view, that discipleship has fallen on hard times. Uh, I would argue with a little bit of historical uh, perspective that discipleship has always fallen on hard times. Uh, Jesus said that there will be many people who will say, Lord, Lord, but didn't we cast out demons and have healing lines and, and fly over, all over the world for you? And Jesus will say, depart from me, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And uh, so there's been this growth, I was talking about last time, this growth of a new monasticism in Christian circles a monasticism that mirrors the medieval monasticism that was either the active life, like Francis of Assisi, preached the gospel at all times and if necessary use words, and then the contemplative uh, monastic movement, which was more uh, sitting in your cell, praying, reading your Bible, chanting, uh, and uh, in both cases, the attempt was to ascend the ladder either by good works or by uh, contemplation and to seize God in his heavenly throne by your works or by your experience. And the Reformation said no to that, first of all, because God has come down to us, we don't rise up to him. But also because once that's true, our discipleship goes out to the world. Uh, A monk keeps that discipleship in that cell. It can't go anywhere out to people who actually need the works that believers have to, to give. God has all sorts of things. God says, I don't need anything from you, Christian. I did everything for you. I need nothing from you. You don't get the relationship, do you? Uh, I have everything I need. I'll be okay. Uh, there are other people down there I created in my image they need you. They need to hear the gospel, and they also need their roofs fixed, and they need their, they, they need money. They need uh, uh, someone to help them get a job. They need all sorts of things. And guess what? I'm going to take care of them through you. You're going to be my mask that I'm going to wear to these people when I take care of them. When I send rain upon the just and the unjust alike, 
When you imitate me in doing that, you are a mask of mine. I'm, I'm working through you to love and serve your neighbors. That's where your good works go. And that's why the Reformation was such a culture-transforming movement without trying to be. It set out to just preach the word and administer the sacraments and have discipline, have well-ordered churches, not to take over. They said that Rome and the Anabaptists are pretty good at, uh, at, at creating Christian cultures, uh, either, either Christendom or the Anabaptist separated community. But neither one of those approaches is the one that we're taking, the Reformers said. We are world-embracing, unlike the Anabaptists who go off into their their own communities, uh, but we're not world-controlling like the Roman church. We are salt and light in the world, but we don't replace the world. We're not out there to control things. We're out there simply to love and serve our neighbors in this time between the two comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that interim period, to make sure that uh, the education of the ministry and missions are well supported by the churches so the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, which is part of the definition of the fourth commandment in the Heidelberg Catechism for celebrating the Lord's Day properly. So disciples often misunderstand and obey their Lord, but they follow their Lord. People who say that they are Christians, but they're they're, they're considering being disciples, or they talk about Jesus being their Savior, but maybe... I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm considering that next stage of making him Lord of my life. Have to remember two things. Number one, you don't make Jesus Savior or Lord. He is Savior and Lord. Uh, don't make him anything. He makes you his sinner. You don't make him your Savior. Uh, and the second thing uh, is that, that you can't separate his Lordship from his redemptive power. He is Savior and Lord. That's who He is. So discipleship is not an optional extra. And that means that you can't have a church where you have people... Some of us were raised in churches where we, we had uh, a kind of pseudo-monastic community living within the church at large. So the church at large may have been made up of all kinds of people we were pretty sure weren't really born again. And then there were lots of other people who would come together at prayer meeting. Ah, now that's when you knew who was who in the zoo. Um, or they would get together in other, you know, small groups and in uh, uh, missions groups. And that, now that's the, that's the group. That's the elect right there. And everybody else is kind of, we're glad you came, but we're not sure we're going to see you in heaven. There's a tendency to separate the sheep from the goats. And get into vigilante operations where we say, you know what, I, I, don't think that, I don't think that so-and-so really is born again. And sometimes it gets difficult when you come into a sort of a reformed environment and you're told you can't do that anymore uh, because a profession of faith made publicly before the elders is regarded as certified by Jesus Christ himself. Now, we don't know how exactly, uh, it's not identical, the church's word uh, as an ambassador is not identical to Christ's word. We don't know what God in his freedom does, but we do know that God promises to speak through 
his church, the pastors and elders, who are qualified and set apart for this duty of discerning public professions of faith. And so everybody is a disciple. Everyone who has made a public profession of faith is a disciple of Jesus Christ. There aren't two types of Christians, carnal and spiritual, disciple and, and uh, not disciple, saved but singed. No, we're all, we're all in this boat together. We're all miserable disciples, but disciples nonetheless. Um, where then do we get discipleship from uh, the, the New Testament in particular? Rabbi means teacher. That's what rabbi means. Uh, and in Jesus' day, disciples attached themselves to a particular rabbi, taking on the yoke of the master, which is why, for example, Jesus uh, complained about the religious leaders of his day. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's a bad yoke. That's a yoke... Everybody is yoked to someone or something. You can be yoked to, uh, to, to uh, lots of good things that can become idols. Uh, but to be yoked to Jesus is to be fundam- fundamentally freed of a burden. That's why Jesus could say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. See, discipleship is first of all learning. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So when people make discipleship primarily a matter of spiritual disciplines, individual private exercises, I'm not saying that those aren't involved, but primarily that's what discipleship is, what you do in private in your, in your quiet time, or that it is feverish activity out there uh, uh, in in uh, social projects, getting the, getting the church involved in social projects. In both of those, again, many many things there that we could talk about doing. But if that's primarily what discipleship means, in either of those cases, we have just gentilized the whole concept of rabbi and disciple. That's not what rabbi and disciple mean. Well, you're well, you Calvinists, yeah, you're going to turn everything into a school. Uh, <laughs> Well, it is. It's not a school like a European school or an American school. It's like a Jewish uh, uh, yeshiva, you know. It's but it's walking around with a rabbi during Q and A, doing Q and A on the road with him, and you're asking him, well, what does this mean? Well, what does that mean? Only this rabbi can actually heal the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf, and then teach you that he has come to do that in an ultimate sense, for the house of Israel, for the remnant that he has chosen. And so his sayings related in the Gospels have to do with his answers in the form of teachings. Are we we beginning to get a thread here? Rabbi, disciple, which is is uh, an English word taken from the Latin for student. Uh, Jesus giving teachings. This is a mobile classroom. It is a classroom. It is a school. Uh, It's not uh, the same as sort of sitting in a lecture hall taking notes. It's being out there and seeing where life meets doctrine. 
which is probably one of the weaknesses of modern European and American education. Uh, one of the benefits of walking around with the rabbi was that you actually saw this connection between what he believed and what he practiced. And you were actually there with him at the bedside when he was applying the doctrine of uh, the, at least if he was a Pharisee, the resurrection of the dead to uh, a person who was dying. Jesus didn't imagine that his example was enough to win the day. In fact, the things that he had to do, that he said he came to do, were really things he could only do by himself. Uh, the, the disciples, of course, wanted to imitate Jesus. They wanted to, well, let, let us go. If you're going, we'll go right along with you. If you get coronated in Jerusalem, we'll be there, on, one on your right, one on your left, and so forth. Oh, we, we're right there with you. And Jesus says, you can't be right there with me. I love you too much. I've come to save you. You are the beneficiaries. You're the ones who need to be saved by me. I've got to do some stuff here for the next... It's going to be a, a week here that's going to go by very quickly because a lot of stuff is packed into one week. But for this next week, almost nothing can you do with me. I'm doing it all for you. And so the primary sign of discipleship was the acceptance of Jesus' teaching concerning himself. You are a disciple of me if you believe I am who I say I am. Who do you say that I am? That's, that was the primary question during that week, the primary question of discipleship. The persecutions that are recounted then in the book of Acts are all said to have been on account of the name and testifying to the name. There is no other name in heaven or on earth by which people can be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And it was that name that the Jews and the Greeks, or the Romans, said, you have to stop mentioning. It's causing a ruckus. The, the, the Jewish council is getting a, a, a petition together to shut you guys up. And... Besides that, you're drying up the, uh, the idol trade in some of our territories. I mean, seriously, these people depend on this nutty stuff. Maybe nutty, but it, they depend on it for their livelihood. You're, you're having an economic impact here, and you need to stop doing this. In John 6, Jesus offends the crowd of consumers. You know, the 5,000 follow him. They had the feeding of the loaves, and now it's dinner time. They're their stomachs are growling again and they follow Jesus getting every speedboat they could find to get to the other side of the lake and find him and catch up with him and he was trying to keep up the pace. Come on guys, you're slacking. We've got we to gotta get away from these people. He didn't exactly build a crystal cathedral uh, you know, uh, or pitch a big tent and say, oh great, this is a revival. He started preaching Calvinism and, which is what you do whenever you want to drive people away. Uh, it's like a, you know, a Scottish revival. Yeah, we got rid of a lot of people we've been trying to get rid of for a long time. <laughs> and they're, they're, Jesus starts teaching the hard sayings, not because he wants to drive them away, but because he wants the people who are left to really be disciples. And so he says, uh, you can't even come to me unless I draw you. My Father who sent me draws you. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me... And this is the will of him who sent me, that all he's given me to save, I will not lose one, but raise him up at the last day. 
If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Yeah, Moses, the one who gave you that bread, he didn't give you the bread. My father gave you the bread, and that was just temporal bread, and your fathers died in the wilderness. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have everlasting life. And they were just absolutely baffled by all this, this instruction. And he said, uh, yeah, does this offend you? What if the Son of Man goes back to where he was before? I, you know, I could do this. I could go back, and you guys could just pull us all off yourself. How about that? I could just, let's just say, let's cancel the engagement. And uh, he, we read uh, that, uh, uh, that, that the people said, this is a hard teaching, and who can bear it? And many of his disciples walked with him no more. They went away. And Jesus turned to the twelve. He didn't go running after them saying, just kidding, or, or, or saying, uh, okay, 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 okay. I started a little too deep. You know, let's, let's start with seeker, and then we'll go to serious. No, Jesus, Je- Jesus said that, and then, and then turned to the twelve and said, do you want to go too? What kind of, what is he doing? Do you want to go, he's just whittled it down to 12. He already knows it's going to be 11 before it's all over. And uh, he says, you want to go too. And Peter says, these are hard teachings and who can bear them. But where else can we go? For you are the Holy One sent from God and you have the words of eternal life. And that was the turning point. That was the turning point for Peter and it was a turning point for the church because at that day, we could, we could say, by, by our American terms, we would say that was a failure in the ministry and mission of Jesus. That was a day of failure. But for Jesus, it was a day of great victory and for us, it was a great day of, of victory because guess what? Out of that day, 11 disciples who became the apostles of the Christian church were founded. We needed them. And Jesus created them that day by his word. The words that I speak, he said in that same speech, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. And he gave them spirit, the Holy Spirit, and he gave them life by his speech, by what he said. He formed them and he shaped them and they became disciples. And so 11 disciples that day turned the world upside down eventually whereas the consumers would never have done so. The consumers would have gone to him, then they would have gone to some other traveling salesman who came down the pike who promised them health, wealth, and happiness. So this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to swallow everything he says, hook, line, and sinker, even the parts you don't like. That's primarily what it means to be a disciple. Now, being disciples involves a whole formation of life with new choices, habits, and virtues that exhibit a new character. Being a disciple involves tons of stuff besides word and sacrament and discipline. Being a disciple involves making choices tomorrow, not just today, but making choices tomorrow about, about, uh, uh, about your schedule, about what you do, about what you think about, about relationships that you have, and about how you relate in those relationships. Being a disciple involves a lot of stuff, but making disciples depends on the ministry of word and sacrament. That's how disciples are made. That's not everything that disciples are, 
but it's how disciples get made. And there's very little of that evidence uh, or that emphasis in, in a whole host of churches today. You can go into a lot of Christian bookstores and see a lot of books on discipleship. From spiritual diet books, uh, how, how I lost 10, 10 uh, pounds uh, uh, the Lord's way, uh, you know, whether to, whether to uh, 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 feed your babies, uh, uh, you know, what, what's the sleep schedule and all that. There's a, a godly speak, sleep schedule. I mean, good night. It, it just everything that Jesus never talked about. But, oh, if we talk about the Great Commission's elements, actual elements, preaching the gospel all the time, baptizing, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Supper. And teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Catechesis. All of that. If we talk about the, the mission of the church in those terms that Jesus laid out, it's called churchianity. And it's very important for us to, to, to see the distinction between being disciples, which involves all sorts of decisions, that are some, some of which depend on wisdom, that don't have any direct uh, uh, direction from the Bible. Godly wisdom. And making disciples, which depends only on this ministry of word and sacrament. That ministry of word and sacrament is like a great fountain that pours from the pulpit and the table and the font out into the pews and then out from the pews into our cars as we go home into the week as we have our family devotions, as if we're married, we talk the, about these things when we're, we rise up, we sit down, we uh, uh, get, are getting dressed, we set aside time personally and privately to read the Bible and pray together. But it all starts with this. It, it's the public assembly, covenant assembly of God's people that is the fountain for all of those activities. So the, the Reformation piety in no way denigrates the importance of certainly family disciplines, but also private disciplines of prayer and Bible reading and meditation on God's word. It's what it comes from uh, that is the question. The, I've made this point before, and I'm not going to spend much time on it uh, here. I've talked about uh, how, especially when I was going through the Romans, so the big, big arguments of Romans uh, made the point uh, that, that Romans really moves us from the drama of redemption to the doctrine that explains that drama and its implications for us. And then the doxology, the praise that that drama and doctrine evoke in us. And then the discipleship, that is the reasonable service that we live in the light of it. You see that when Paul begins Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, by saying, here's the drama, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name 
among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's the whole drama of redemption in a nutshell. And then he begins to make his first doctrinal uh, argument about original sin, moving then to justification, redemption, being baptized uh, in Jesus Christ, raised in newness of life, sanctification, glorification. And then, what can you do but, but respond in praise and gratitude? The right, the right response to that emotionally is thank you. Uh, not, I'll fix that. But thank you. That's the right response to everything Paul has said up to that point. And that's why he says, what shall we say in response to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will lay any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And who will separate us from the love of God? Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then he goes back into the drama, the history of the covenant with Abraham. Back into the doctrine out of that, that God's word hasn't failed. He's always had a people. He's always had the prerogative to choose whom he will, to save whom he will, to harden whom he will. That sovereign prerogative of grace belongs to God alone. Uh, So his word hasn't failed. It's just that Israel trying to be justified by works did not submit to the righteousness which is by faith. And then after he tells this story and the doctrine that unpacks it, once again, he's back up in the, you know, he's the kite that, that, whoosh, back up in the, the, the clouds again, sailing with, with the wind of that news, saying, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who's ever given him anything that he should pay him back for from him and to him and through him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he says, Now, beloved, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Stop being conformed to this world's way of thinking. See, again, discipleship, first of all, is a way of thinking. That issues in a way of experiencing and feeling and praising. And then ultimately in a way of living. But really, the source, you've got you to change your mind first about who God is, who you are, what your relationship is to God. And the, you only do that, Paul says there in chapter 12, by the renewing of your mind through the Word of God. Mind renewal through the Word of God, that is the heart of discipleship. That's what it means for the great rabbi, who's more than a rabbi, our Savior Jesus Christ, to still meet us along the Emmaus Road and teach us everything that he's delivered to the saints and to his apostles for our good, for our care. So the drama leads to the doctrine. To the do- and it doesn't, it's not like it happens in stages. And the first, my first few years as a Christian, I was really into the drama. And then I graduated from drama school. And now, then I went immediately into uh, doctrine school. And then I went to the discipleship, or the doxology grade. And then... I graduated and and went to the high school of discipleship. Now, all of this is happening all of the time in interpenetrating ways. So at every moment of my Christian discipleship, I need to go back to the drama or the doctrine will be stale. It won't mean anything for me. It'll just be these, these dry propositions. 
Got to go back to the drama. But the drama doesn't mean anything for me unless the doctrine tells me he was not only crucified and raised in fulfillment of his promise, but he was crucified for my sin and raised for my justification. And that has to yield praise and thanksgiving. The first test of really whether we get the doctrine is whether we praise how we respond in our hearts. And then do we live on the basis of that? We don't live the gospel, but do we live in the light of the gospel? In view of the mercies of God, are we presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice? I'll close on this one. I used to uh, play by ear uh, a lot. Uh, Jessica Purvis is teaching our kids piano, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. I had some good piano teachers, but I was, I was just... Uh, as good as they were, I was bad as a student. And so I would, I would uh, memorize what they were playing. And then I would play it back. And I didn't have the habits, the discipline. I was too, uh, I was, I was too um, impatient, which happily I've grown out of, my wife tells me. Uh, I was too impatient to learn the habits and the disciplines of, of piano practice. And so I would go the easy route. And to this day, all I know are a bunch of show tunes that I can play by ear. Look, it's easy. The Christian church, you can find it all out there. There are lots of churches that teach you to play the piano in five easy steps by, by playing by ear. The harder, the really hard, hard thing to do is to develop the habits and practice day after day, night after night, so that eventually you're not focusing on your fingers or the notes on the page, but you're just living in the music. And that's what we do as we grow up as Christians. Our goal is not to focus on the doctrine, but to use the doctrine to live in the music, to follow Jesus on the way uh, as he opens up the scriptures to us week after week and day by day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word that guides us into all truth and your spirit who illumines our hearts to embrace it and receive it. Father, we pray that you would make us more faithful disciples, those who are eager to hear your word, uh, to learn that word, to praise you for that word and to live in the light of that word and then to share that word with uh, those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.